This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings, and we're joined today by Tyler Sesnon, one of Marty's disciples. Welcome, Tyler. Hello. Thank you. Uh, in this episode, we ask the question the rabbis have asked over the centuries. Why did God choose Abraham? And once again, we do have a presentation that goes along with this episode, episode 8. And you can find that on BamaDiscipleship.com or in your podcast app of choice. If you can follow along, that's great. If you can't, uh, we will try to describe what's happening for you. Yeah, so let's see here. First of all, this whole episode does start with that question. Uh, rabbis always wanted to know, why did God choose Avram? We're going to call him Avram until his name changes to Avraham. But uh, one of their big questions, why would God choose Avram? Now, for the Westerner, I think we think, mm, what an arbitrary question. Like, it doesn't matter. God chooses who God wants. doesn't even matter. He's the potter, we're the clay. But the Jewish mind says there's, there's got to be a reason because the story has to be here to teach us. The story has to be here to tell us the kinds of people that God wants to partner with. So there must be a reason. And, and so the typical Bible student probably responds with, well, I mean, too bad. There is no reason because we meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and God has chosen him. God chooses him. And the first words we're told is go leave your father's household and uh, go to a land that I'll show you. So there's no reason. Uh, sorry, but I think the Jewish teacher says, uh, but that's not where we meet Avram. You see, we meet Avram in the genealogy that precedes Genesis 12. So there must be something in this genealogy. About... Now we're talking. Yeah. Then, I now said we're... we were going to get to these genealogies. <laughs> this is where it starts. Yes, indeed. So I'm going to go back to, uh, Genesis 11 and I want to read starting in verse 27 through the rest of the chapter. So that'll be 1127 through 32. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Avram, Nohor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Avram and Nahor both married. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Yiscah. Now Sarai was barren, and she had no children. Terah took his son Avram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Avram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they, got, when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Uh, so one of the things I want to do is I want to take this section of scripture, genealogy, and we're like, oh man, definitely no treasure buried there. Uh, and we're going to start. We're going to start by trying to put this on the presentation, and kind of put it on on the blackboard in front of you. So we've got uh, we've got Terah, and I'm going to ask Tyler. Tyler's sitting here. Uh, Tyler, go ahead and tell me as you walk through this kind of phrase by phrase what you see happening, and we're going to put it in the presentation in front of us. All right. Uh, so the first thing I see is that Terah has three sons. All right. So Terah's got three sons, Avram, Nahor, and Haran. Is that correct? Is that what you see? That's what I see. All right. In that order, too. Is that correct? Yes. All right. So we've got Avram, Nahor, and Haran. That will be your first slide of your presentation, these three sons of Terah. Okay. What do you see next, Tyler, when you look at this? 
Well, Haran has uh, the interesting addition of being the father of Lot. Okay, so he's the father of Lot. So Haran has a son, the son, that, the only son in this grandson we're told about of Teraz's line. Um, so he has a son, Lot, and what's next? While Teraz alive, Haran dies in Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, so that that's not only just unfortunate, but it's incredible. It's an interesting situation in genealogy because you usually don't die before your father. But while Teraz still alive, Haran dies. So we've uh, depicted that on the presentation in front of you. What do you see next, Tyler? I see Abraham and Nahor get married. Okay. So Avram and Nahor take wives. They they find wives, and we're told a little about them. What do you see there? Their names are Sarai and Milka. And who is Sarai's wife? Or whose wife is Sarai? Abraham or okay. Avram. Okay, so Avram's wife is Sarai, and then Milka then is married to... Nehor. Nehor, okay. And and what else are we told about Milka? Uh, Milka is the daughter of Haran. Okay, and anything else? And Haran is the father of both Milka and Ishka. Okay, now when you're just reading this, it can be a little bit tricky to follow along, but that's why we put it in the presentation is because once you draw it out, you're like, okay, I'm totally tracking with what's going on here. So this next slide will show you the three sons of Terah, of Ram Nahor and Haran, who's now dead uh, and struck out. And then there's Lot, who is Haran's son. We are also told that Haran had two other children, and he might, may have even had more, but we're told about two other daughters, Milka and Yiska. And in the middle of that, we were told that Avram and Nahor took wives, and the wife that Nahor took was the daughter of Haran. Okay, do you got anything else in there, or is that, is that pretty much it? No, there's uh, there's the big, glaring uh, fact that Sarai was barren. Excellent. Okay, so we have a, we have a barren Sarai, which is going to be, if you know anything about where the story of Genesis is going, a very, very, very big deal. Um, so Sarai is barren. Now, if we were to step back and look at, I'll just ask this question to either one of you, Tyler or Brent. Uh, we're going to ask that typical question. What kind of problems do we have with this story? What, what doesn't work? What seems odd? What sticks out? So whatever you guys got, uh, give me whatever you're thinking. Well, looking in front of me right now at the uh, graph here, I see that Abram had the option to uh, marry a wife who wasn't barren. And he still is married to Sarai. That seems to be a problem for a patriarch. Okay. Now, now tell me more about that. Why, why would you say he had the option but didn't do it? Well, one of them's not married to anybody because uh, Haran's gone out of the picture here. And uh, so Ishka's kind of left floating around. Right. Okay. And Avram is supposed to... Is this sticking out to you because you kind of think Avram should be married? Well, I'm thinking ahead in the story here. And uh, at some point, God's going to tell... Avram, that he's going to bless all nations through him. So that that could be a problem if he can't have any kids. Right, right. So we're going to have that problem eventually later in the narrative. That for sure is going to be there. Brent, do you see anything in this story that you see? I don't know how much you want me to get into this. Um, I feel like we're going to talk about this a lot more uh, in the rest of Genesis. But uh, the Epic of Eden talks a lot about uh, this idea of patriarchy and firstborn and whatnot. So Avram is the firstborn, and yet his wife is unable to conceive. And so who's going to carry on the line? Yeah, who's going to carry on the line? But even more, you guys are both bringing up the firstborn issue, and even more glaring than that. Now, we're not told that Haran is married. Are we told about a wife at all in that, Tyler? When you Any wife? I didn't Haran? see any. Okay, there's no wife mentioned uh, of Haran 
maybe there is no wife. Maybe this son Lot came some other way, which wouldn't be atypical because you don't mention women in a genealogy. You just don't. Women don't show up in a genealogy unless there's absolute direct relevance. Like they're needed for the story. They're needed for the genealogy. They just don't show up. So it's not odd that we're not told about Haran's wife, but we want to make sure we're not jumping to conclusions. Or, But Haran is, uh, apparently he has a son. So the assumption is that somewhere he's married, but what's wrong with that based on the birth order? Well, if you uh, look at the one, two, three, that order we talked about being important earlier, he's the last of the three. And who would you expect to be married first? Abram. Abram. Like there's, there's something here in this family that doesn't make sense. The last born son is the only one that is married and having children. And the first two sons aren't married at all. And I don't want to dwell here too long, but that's going to be, uh, there's a problem there. There's something with, about this family um, that isn't quite following the rules as you would expect it to be followed culturally. Brent, did you have something else I saw? Yeah, if what you're saying about women not showing up in genealogies is true, unless there's an absolute necessary reason, absolutely necessary reason. Well, okay, we've got a lot, we've got a lot of women in this genealogy, first of all, and some of them, some of them are mentioned multiple times. Milka is like over and over, like we're told a lot about Milka. Nahor's wife was Milka. She, Milka again, was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milka and Iska. Right. So Milka gets a, a little triple mention there. Absolutely. Which is weird because what I, I still don't know why she's important. Why is she even here? Correct. And then Iska, there's no connection from her to anyone else. Correct. I'm really glad you picked up on that. Th- this whole... The women in this... Now, Sarai makes sense because Sarai, as you both have pointed out, is going to be a part of this family of promise. She's going to be essential to the story. So I can understand why the author is going to include Sarai. What doesn't make any sense is why Milka and Yiska are included. What is the... Outside of this genealogy, what is the relevance to this? Now, Milka is going to show up again later in the story... But the one that really doesn't belong, there's like absolutely no reason for her to be there is who? Yiska. Yiska. So, so the rabbis are going to say there has to be a reason why Yiska's in the genealogy. That, that is a complete addition that absolutely does not need to be here. Milka would also be one of it. But at the moment you start looking at this paragraph, there's something else that jumps out to me when I look at it. Another problem. It's like the author has like the worst case of like... ADD, like the author's like, okay, and then Avram and Nahor took wives, and then um, Nahor married Milka, and Avram married Sarai, and by the way, Milka was the daughter of Haran, who also had another daughter named Yiska. Oh yeah, and by the way, Sarai was barren. Like, the barrenness of Sarai is not where it ought to be. Like, tell me about Sarai's barrenness when you're talking about Sarai. Why are you waiting until the end of the paragraph to all of a sudden come back to Sarai really awkwardly? Like that should have been mentioned about two verses earlier than it was mentioned, three phrases earlier than it was mentioned, and it's all out of order. And why is Yiska even mentioned at all completely irrelevant? So so that's one of the things that we end up having. Now, this is one place where, again, the Midrash is going to, uh, there's this brilliant, one of my favorite, one of my absolute favorite Midrash uh, in the Jewish tradition. Tells this long story about Avram leaving his country and his father's 
uh, house and all of these things. And and then there's this, another long portion of the story where Avram gets thrown in a fiery furnace, which if you're thinking of things like the book of Daniel, I believe you ought to. Uh, there's going to be some connections there, but not today. I digress. Um, but uh, Avram comes out of this furnace and, and in the midst of this, at the end of this big long story, and you might remember me saying that a a Jewish midrash likes to take you around the block in order to make a point that's right next door. Um, this long story ends with this assertion that Avram marries Iska, which for somebody reading the story... How is that even possible? Right. The text says he marries Sarai. Exactly. And the midrash can't contradict the text. So what in the world is the author of the midrash and the teachers of the midrash trying to tell us? Like... Uh, no, our answer to the midrash is no. No, it doesn't. Like, How is it even possible? It's not even it possible. It's so plainly stated that yes. Ram's wife was Sarai. Right. It just is this hovering weirdness. Now, by the way, the one thing that we didn't talk about that I'm realizing now in passing is the fact that these uh, Nahor is marrying his niece. Oh yeah, I did, I did think of that for a <laughs> yeah. moment. I was going to mention that. That does <laughs> look more obvious when you look at the. Uh, Graphic. The genealogy, right? The, it's like, yeah, ooh, the, there's not a lot of distance. Yeah. That's absolutely. the same branch of this tree. So it's probably worth noting as we kind of pass by that. Uh, I think we're used we're used enough, the three of us in this room are are, are used to the story enough that it doesn't jump out to us in the way it used to. But in this ancient uh, patriarchal world, uh, this is going to be much more expected. You take care of your own family. You take care of your own clan. And in fact, you want to marry within your own people group. Now, typically, you're going to marry within a much larger people group than the handful of people I can put on one slide of our presentation. That is a little close to home. But nevertheless, it wouldn't be nearly as, um, uh, it wouldn't have the stigma that it would have in our culture uh, in order for them to to do what they're doing. Uh, so worth worth mentioning as we, we pass over here. But when you take this idea where the Midrash says Avram marries the other niece named Iska, you go back to the text and you're trying to figure out why did the rabbis teach that Avram marries Iska? That's just nonsense. Well, if you dig into the language, the Hebrew language, the Hebraic language, and then the Sumerian language, if you look at this, if you were to say Yiska's name in a Chaldean tongue, which is where they're from, they're from Ur of the Chaldeans, we're told that twice in this passage. If you put Yiska in a Chaldean tongue, her name means my princess, or just princess to be more accurate. Now, if you look at the translation of Sarai, many Bibles that will actually be in your footnote, you'll notice that Sarai in the Hebrew means my princess. And now all of a sudden we stumble upon this idea, if you go to the next slide in your presentation, that Sarai and Yiska may in fact be the same person. Now, this just raises another question. Why in the world... Would Avram do this? Why is it buried in this genealogy? And what is the story trying to teach us? Well, there's one more thing that doesn't uh, jump out to us in the English, but would jump out to us in the Hebrew. If you were to look at the story and you were to notice um, the phrase, uh, Avram and Nahor took wives. What you don't realize in the Hebrew is grammatically the, 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 the grammar is all messed up. What it says is, Avram and Nahor, he took wives which doesn't work. I mean, I'm no English major, but it's not supposed to be Avram and Nahor, he took wives. It's Avram and Nahor, they took wives. 
but in the Hebrew, it becomes singular. And if you had been paying attention to the Hebrew earlier in Genesis, you would know that this showed up once before. We've seen this exact same phrase show up before. It was back in the story of Noah when he cursed Ham's son, Canaan. And what happened was after Ham came out and told his brothers about Noah's nakedness or what he had done, we're told that shame and Yephet take a blanket and they put it over their shoulders and they walk backwards so that they don't look at their father's nakedness and they place a blanket over their father. But the phrase that's used is shame and Yephet, he took a blanket and they walked backwards. And so in the, the Hebrew mind, what that phrase is trying to say is that you have, you have two or more people, you have a plural amount of people that decide to do a benevolent act together. They decide to do something benevolent together and they are of one mind. They are of one singular mind. Somebody says, listen, I think we ought to do this benevolent thing. And the other person says, I think you're absolutely right. And that's what we should do. And then they act together. They are, in one, they are of one mind. And so shame and Yephet, he took a blanket because the two of them were of one mind together. Now, in the Hebrew, you would always give the credit to which person do you suppose, Tyler? The first or the second? I don't know. I'd, uh, I would go with the first. I think you're right. And so in the Hebrew mind, whenever it does this, you give the credit. The idea, the credit for the idea goes to the first person mentioned. So in shame and Yephet, he took a blanket. Who gets the credit for the original idea in the story? It's got to be shame. Yep. Shame gets the credit for being the one that said, hey, Yephet, we got to go cover up our dad. So how about we grab a blanket? And Yephet says, yeah, that's exactly what we need to do. And they are of one mind as they do this benevolent act for their father. So let's take the same idea and go back to the story of Avram and apply this. So Avram and Nahor, he took wives. So we can make probably a couple observations about that. What are you guys seeing? Brent, what do you see there? Well, if that's how it actually reads... uh is he actually taking multiple wives? Is Avram taking multiple wives? <laughs> okay, there's that. What if we were to apply the same logic of Noah's story to the Avram statement? Well, it means Avram says, hey, we should get married, my brother. Right. And it must be what kind of... So it's whose idea, you just said. Avram's idea. It's Avram's idea. He's mentioned first. But it also must be what kind of an act, Tyler? A benevolent act. Right. There's something behind what they're doing here. That's ab- Avram is looking at Nahor saying, we got to do this. This is the right thing to do. And, and what Nahor we were, apparently agrees. And Nahor agrees. And they're of one mind together when they do it. Now, why is Avram and Nahor saying that the benevolent, the right thing to do is to marry their nieces in a patriarchal culture? Because their father died. Because their father has died and their father is the sole provider of their, of their sustenance, of what they need putting food on the table, their protector. He's the one that's going to give them away in marriage and arrange their marriage. Their father is everything, and now their father is dead. And Avram, and Avram looks at Nahor and says, you know what we got to do? We got to marry our nieces so that somebody is there to provide for them. Somebody is there to protect them. Somebody is there to give them dignity. And, and it's Avram's idea. But then it goes one step further. Because if it's Avram's idea, now we're back to Tyler. I thought Tyler was going to head me off at the pass earlier, but I was able to dodge it. 
What what observation did you make earlier, Tyler? Well, if uh, Abraham's the first mentioned, he's probably going to choose the wife that's going to provide him children. And if one of them's barren, he's probably not going to marry the barren one. Avram, by every stretch of the imagination of this story, is the one who gets to choose. A, he's the firstborn. B, it was his idea in the first place. Avraham is, Avram is the one who gets to choose which niece he wants. Now, people always want to come back at me and say, well, they wouldn't have known that she's barren. How, I, would, how would they know? Well, I, I think the story presumes that they know. A, it tells us she's barren right up front as a staple. Tyler pointed out one of the most important parts of the story. But the other thing is in an ancient patriarchal culture, uh, when you do the math on the story, Sarai uh, has to be, or excuse me, Yiska, if they're the same person, has to be older because there's no way you can make the math work. She can't be a young girl in this story. Uh, that's not according to Jewish tradition, and you couldn't do that with a literal reading of the text. So she has to be older. Well, in a patriarchal Middle Eastern world, when you menstruate, you're given away in marriage. The two are almost synonymous. Like the moment you begin menstruating, the word begins spreading that you're now available for marriage. This is how the ancient world worked. So if she hasn't been married, I have to assume, I'm no doctor, I don't know what kind of conditions out there exist. I have to assume that there are ways in this culture that they know she's not, she's not, she's barren. She's not able to give children. At the very least, this is how the story wants us to read it. The inspired story wants us to read it with an awareness that she's barren. And at no point in the story of Genesis later, are we given some shocking, like, oh, now Avram realizes she's barren. It's a presumption through the entire narrative of Avram. Avram is assuming from day one in the story the barrenness of Sarai. There's no story where he's shocked to become aware that she's barren. Um, so we read this story and we read that Avram takes the barren daughter. Now, what has Avram just done, Tyler, by taking the barren, the barren daughter? He's, uh, his family line is done. Like there will be no descendants as a, this is somebody and maybe this even speaks to why Haran is married and Avram and Nahor aren't. This seems to be a family, and these guys seem to be sons that uh, don't seem to have. It's not me first. And I think about I think about the stories we've talked about, Cain, and and it was all about Cain's name, and and, and how how he could acquire, and how he could possess. I think about the Tower of Babel, the parallel story to Cain. And it was all about making a name for themselves. And here's a guy who's not concerned about his name. His name is not going to continue. And that's not what's on his mind. What's on his mind is giving dignity and hope and provision and protection to somebody who doesn't have those things. This is somebody, you see, at the end of Genesis 1 through 11, we're left with kind of like this lurching feeling that humanity is... It's hopeless. Like nobody in humanity is going to be able to do what God calls them to do. We're all driven by fear and insecurity. We can't. We we can't pull on our image of Godness. Uh, we're just hopeless. We're always going to pursue self. And into the story, we're introduced to a guy that, for whatever reason, says, "I'm more interested than in somebody else. I know when to stop. I'm not going to be obsessed with my own creativity." 
I'm going to be obsessed with somebody else and their creativity and their dignity and their name. I'm going to be, and God immediately enters the story and says, I can work with that. I can work with somebody who's willing to know when to say enough, to know how to control their desires and lay down their life on behalf of somebody else. And the rabbis teach this, this is the kind of person that God chooses to use. This, this is the back end of the chiasm of Genesis 1 through 11. This is where the narrative, the introduction to the narrative begins, is by meeting somebody who would willingly say, I know what the right thing to do here is. It's going to require self-sacrifice, and I'm in anyway. Which is what the entire narrative of the scripture is going to be trying to teach us. So into this introduction, we begin to be introduced to the characters of the story. And these characters uh, tell us something that's going to ring true throughout all the pages of Scripture. And so we're invited to be like Avram, to be somebody who knows when to say enough and to pursue others. Good teaching coming out of the Midrash right there. I good, feel like good stuff. I feel like that idea of Avram parallels God at the very beginning in verse one of Genesis one, like God is all of this stuff. Like he doesn't need anything, but he's like, I want to, I want to do something for someone else. Absolutely. Avram puts, puts on display and models. At, at, now Avram's not going to be perfect. If anybody knows the story of Avram, he's going to have his moments, but he has a piece of God that he shows the world. Like he, he gets it on some level. He gets it. Uh, and the story also gives us hope because I think it tells us uh, we can get it. Uh, we can have a piece of God. We can actually respond the way we're supposed to respond. It's not hopeless. We're not going to be perfect. Um, but we are made in the image of God, and it can work. It's good stuff. Well, I think that does it for this episode. If you live on the Palouse, we hope you join us for our discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. If you're in the area but don't know anything about that, Go over to BeamonDiscipleship.com. You'll see all the details about where those groups are at, and you'll find all kinds of other information about the show. Uh, once again, we do hope you have a chance to check out that uh, presentation that we had uh, for this episode. And uh, let's see, you can find Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCV. Tyler, are you on Twitter? I am, but uh, I don't use it enough to know uh, what my Twitter handle is. So. Oh, that's embarrassing. Probably something like at the says dog or at oh, TC well, says none. Maybe know. if you end up being a guest on another episode in the future. I'll come and prepared. At this, point, at this point, I don't know if that's looking good, but maybe we can get that <laughs> information out there. I'm not technological enough to uh, come back, apparently. So. All right. Well, anyway, thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.